One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. It was very uh, physically dangerous there. You know, um, there were several times in the course of my incarceration where I was beat up. One time in which I nearly lost my life. You know, there, there's a vigilante mentality. I want you to hear from Jeff Deskovic today, the lowest point in his life when he has been wrongfully convicted of rape and murder has appeared before seven different parole boards and been denied every time. And he's almost at the limit of giving up hope. And then Jeff demonstrates that he's unbeatable. This guy's story will blow you away on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Jeff, thank you so much for agreeing to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Oh, thank you for having me. Man, you have an incredible story. I can't wait for people to hear what you went through and how you turned it around and are helping a lot of people who have gone through something similar. But before we get into the real essence of the wrongful imprisonment, let's talk about growing up on the banks of the Hudson River in one of the most beautiful spots in America. Tell me a little bit about what growing up was like in Putnam County, New York. Well, I grew up in Westchester County. All right. Putnam is later on in the story, but I grew up specifically in Peekskill um, in, in Westchester. And yes, yeah. it did have a very beautiful riverbank, by the way, of the, uh, of the Hudson River. Yeah. So I moved there in uh, 1978. I think I was like six or seven years old. And I would say growing up, um, I mean, I kind of really, as long as I can remember, I mean, I, I, I kind of lived a double life. I didn't really think of it that way, but there was my life in school and my life after school. So uh-huh. my life after school, I mean, there were a lot of kids in that apartment complex in Crossroads where I lived at. And uh, I was kind of popular and kind of what I what I would suggest would usually be what we would do. If we're going to play basketball, we're going to swim, we're going to play stickball, Monopoly, video games, movies, you know, and uh, half a dozen or more other games that, you know, we even made up. Yeah. Some things people would recognize, others that they would not. Uh, but that was kind of like my life after school. You know, my, uh, my, my life in school was quiet. I mean, as I think about it, even in grades uh, two through eight, you know, I was more like kind of like quiet and so myself in school, I think it was because I wasn't really familiar with the kids there. So, you know, naturally I was a little bit more tight and withdrawn. Yeah. For people that are listening from around the world, when they hear New York, they just think of New York city, this massive metropolitan area, but the part of New York that you grew up in was very different from that. Can you kind of explain what the community was like? Yeah. uh, This is the suburbs. So peak skills up, small city called itself a city i i mean more of a town to me yeah. but uh but be that as it may it refer it refers to itself as a city population maybe like about twenty five thousand people then at the time i would describe it as uh middle class and ethnically diverse and you already said that you were kind of quiet um in high school or i mean in school were you a, a loner you had friends out of school but did you have a lot of people to hang out with while you were in school I no, I did not. I really had like one person I really hung around with in school. And who was that person? 
Yeah, that was that was definitely my friend uh, Martin Barrett, who's we're still in contact now. All right, we see each other nice. Once or twice a year, because he's in another state uh, in Illinois, but he he definitely comes once or twice a year, and he always lets me know when he's in town because his you know family's yeah. here, and we always pick two or three window periods that work for him and me yeah. so we get it in and i think it's because in some ways we're still kind of like still like the same in a way yeah well it's nice to know that you developed a childhood friendship that stays with you many decades later man absolutely yeah those are very very meaningful and they are rare i agree um i want to kind of i'm trying to build towards this event uh, that happened to you in 1989 but in order for us to get there Tell us a little bit about high school, about high school algebra, about Angela, um, and uh, you know your how you developed a, a, a connection with her. Yeah, so I well in high school again, I the continuation of being like quiet into myself, um, you know, kind of kind of continued. My mother actually wanted me to go to Catholic school for high school because I went there from uh, grades two through eight at Assumption uh-huh. School, but. You know, I was kind of tired of living a double life. And, you know, I thought that, well, all these other kids that, that I'm hanging around with, they're going to public school. So I, I want to go to public high school. And, you know, and so I, uh, yeah, I purposely failed the entrance exam so that I would go to the <laughs> high school. Through the exam. exam all get, right. To the Catholic school. And I thought I would be meeting up with the uh, people that I was hanging out with. Um, but actually, um, they were all like a grade, um, they were a grade below me because I had skipped first grade. Uh, actually. So again, I was like with, I wasn't, I didn't fit in. Everyone was into like, uh, you know, parties and drinking and organized sports and, you know, and chasing girls. And I wasn't really, uh, I really wasn't into that. So again, I was quiet into myself. Uh, I would say one of the myths that have kind of made its way into the media somewhat is, you know, having, being tutored by Angela in in algebra or having a connection with her. I mean, in reality, she was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. Uh, I knew her name. She knew mine. I, that was really the extent of it. We spoke once or twice for just a couple of, uh, uh, you know, a couple of minutes. I mean, she was an immigrant from Columbia. Uh, I'd been in the country for about a year and a half, as I understand it, and uh, she was leading a fairly sheltered life. She never went anywhere unless she was accompanied by her older sister or, or by her or by her uh, parents. Yeah, um, she was younger than you. Is that correct? She was. That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah. At the time of the event that we're going to get to, uh, I was sixteen and she was fifteen. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and talk about what happened on November fifteenth, um, nineteen eighty nine, when you're sixteen years old. Sure. So one of Angela's classes, um, not mine, but hers, was uh, she was in photography class and the teacher had assigned these students to take pictures of foliage. And he had implemented a buddy system whereby male students were matched up with female students. I think it's a safety precaution. Yeah. And so the uh, so after school, Angela went with her sister, went back to her her house. Uh, Her sister went to the restroom. And when she came out, Angela was gone. She went to the park on her own. Now, the male student that was supposed to be accompanying her uh, played hooky on the assignment, so he never showed up. Uh-huh. So she was there's a uh, there's a uh, path like a wooded path. It's really heavily wooded. It's like is um, concreteized to something like blacktop almost. It connects these uh, apartment condominiums to uh, Hillcrest School. And uh, so she was on that path taking pictures of foliage when she came across Stephen Cunningham, who was um, 
It was a 29-year-old um, drug addict who was high, and he attacked, uh, murdered, and raped her. And so her, bo so her body went missing, you know, for a few days. So she went missing on the 15th, and then um, ultimately her body was found on the 17th. Um, so there was, you know, like a lot of rumors going around. There was, you know, there was a, it was a small city. There wasn't yeah. very, murder, very yeah. many murders happening. So fear, rumor, paranoia, you know, parents were bringing their kids right to the school and then picking them up afterwards. There were town hall meetings and safety protocols and updates on investigation. So all that, all that type of thing was going on. Um, how on earth did you get implica implicated in this? Because you're nowhere near, um, and you've just explained this very well, but you're nowhere near this thing when Angela is attacked. So the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school, and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I didn't quite fit in. So that's how I put was got on the police radar. Really? And you're it, just yes. other students said, hey, there's something different about Jeff. He doesn't fit in. Go talk to him. Yeah, I guess the thought is that people who are quiet or don't fit in or loners commit heinous crimes. I think that's what the theory of it is. Uh, and then additional factor is I was a sentimental teenager and this was my first real brush with death. And I did have an emotional reaction yeah. to it. And the police interpreted my emotional reaction as being suspicious, like some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I had done. Um, and But then I want to also point out that this emotionally affected really most people. In yeah, of course. To the, point uh, that, to the point that mental health services were offered to anyone who wanted it uh, for free. So in a larger scheme of things, I wasn't all that different than, than anyone else. And the last thing I'll point out is that the Peekskill police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of uh, matching that. So a type yeah. of reinforcing factor. Yeah. It's likely somebody that, that knew Angela, probably somebody in the school, somebody that uh, is kind of by, by themselves. Uh, so I had, so I, I matched that. And so all those three factors in totality are how I came to be on the police radar. Yeah. What for the listeners, we're going to talk about what happens next and how uh, this affects the next 16 years of your life. But I want to go back for just a second because anytime that there's a death and you know, at the middle school, high school level, it affects almost every student in the school. And you'll see, you know, to this day, um, students that are who have never really even had much interaction with somebody who are distraught over the death of another student because it's their first real exposure to um, how fragile human life is. So totally understandable that you would have this very, uh, you know, uh, uh, very challenging reaction to Angela's death. Um, so the police come to your door, you're 16 years old, and you match the New York Police Department's psychological profile, but you're nowhere close by. What happens next? So I'm on my way to school, and there's really was only, I, li I literally live right across the street from the high schools up on a hill. There uh -huh. are only two ways to really get to the school from my apartment building, and the other way would have really, really, really been out of my way. So the police figure out which way I'm going to take. Pretty easy so to I'm figure out how he's getting to school, right? Easy to Correct. 
So on my way up to the high school, the police intercepted me. They were in a, you know, a unmarked car in plain clothes. And um, they stepped out of the car and, you know, called and called my name. And, you know, at some point they managed to convince me that they actually were police officers. Uh-huh. I wasn't, I was a little skeptical about yeah. that. And they told me they wanted me to come down to the police station that they were investigating the Correa murder and they wanted me to be helpful. And I told them, well, I don't know anything about it, so I don't see how I could be helpful. But they insisted that they want me, wanted me to be helpful. And at some point I agreed to go with them back to the police station. Um, I want to point out at this point, you're a teenager, you're alone. You don't have your parents around, right? That's all correct. Uh Yeah. And I'm 16 years old as well. Yeah. So, uh, so I was there with them from maybe eight thirty in the morning all the way up until like one one thirty in the afternoon. Wow! And uh, they questioned me as a suspect. They showed me pictures of her, and you know when they eventually frightened me, and they ultimately wound up accusing me, not formally but verbally, seeking yeah. to get like a confession or admission. And at that point, when I tried to leave, you know that's when they told me, "Well, how is that going to look if you actually storm out of here?" You know, and then they changed up their tactics. You know, they started, uh, they, Jeff as this junior detective helper theme was developed. So before I was a teenager, I wanted to be, my, the dream career when I grew up was to be a cop. Uh-huh. So, you know, so that, you know, that they would say things like, kids won't talk freely around us, they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything, stop in from time to time. You know, they'd ask me opinion questions, congratulate me that my opinions were, were yeah. correct. Yeah. So I was vulnerable to that because of my age and wanting to be a cop when I grew, grew up, at least before my teenage right. years. And the other thing is that I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique uh-huh. where one officer pretended to be my friend. I began to look to him as uh, an adult male role model. Yeah. And so for the next six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me in which they start out talking to me as a suspect. And then when I, when they go a little too far and I would want to get away from them, I'd become frightened. Then Jeff as a junior detective help routine would be trotted out. And so eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test, uh, otherwise called a lie detector. They said, look, we got some new information in the file. We wanted to share that with you. That's going to allow you to be more helpful to us. Uh-huh but you have to take and pass the polygraph first. So the next day, rather than report to the school, I went to the police station for the test because it was a school day. My mother and grandmother, whom I live, thought I was in school, so they don't call around looking for me. Uh, I thought the test was going to be at the Peekskill uh, Police Headquarters uh-huh. because I had heard through the rumor mill that other people had been polygraphed there. But instead, they drove me to the town of... Uh, town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. Um, so 40 minutes away by car. Yeah. And that means I can't, I don't know where I am and I don't have any money. So I can't leave on my own. Right. I'm totally dependent upon the police. There's no attorney present. They don't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't get. Right. But I, but I pushed past my own concern because after all, I'm there to help the police. What does it matter? Look, let's just get on. With yeah. It. So from there, they put me in a small room. Uh, the polygraphist, by the way, is a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, uh, Daniel Stevens, who never identified himself as a police officer. And he never read me my rights. I had no idea he was law enforcement. Uh-huh. 
and he gives me countless cups of coffee, which gets me nervous. I mean, the purpose of that is to get me nervous because I really wasn't a, a coffee drinker. Yeah. And and then he attaches me to this machine. And then from there, he launches into his third degree tactics. So he invades my personal space. He raises his voice at me. He keeps asking me to see him questions over and over again. So as each hour is passing, my fear is increasing in proportion to the time. Towards the end of the interrogation, uh, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test result that you did. You, we just want you to verbally confirm it. So that really shoots my fear to the roof. Yeah. And at that point, I've been there like six and a half to seven hours uh, being interrogated. And at that point, the officer who's pretending to be my friend, he comes in the room and tells me that the other officers are going to harm me. He's been holding them off. He can't do that any longer, but I had to help myself. So at that, uh, then he says, when he added that if I did as they wanted, they'd stop what they're doing, that I could go home afterwards, and I was not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking long-term. I was only concerned with my safety in the moment. I, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and that nobody else knew where I was either loomed quite large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Plus, there was this push-pull dynamic, the yeah. possibility of harm, this false life preserver. So I took the out which he offered, and I made up a story based on the information that they had given me in the course of that interrogation in the six weeks run up to it. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. And needless to say, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. Yeah. Based on everything that you just described, the you confessed to Angela's rape and murder um, during that polygraph. But for people that are listening to this episode right now from outside the United States that don't understand our legal system, there are, uh, there are, I can't even begin to count the number of things that never should have happened in that room. Can you just kind of big picture explain what, how many of those kind of due process, your legal rights things that should have never happened before you admitted to this rape and murder? It was that well, they were supposed to read me my rights, and another thing was they were. It's illegal for them to threaten me, and it was illegal for them to make false promises. Uh -huh. So those things were illegal, and as will unfold in the story, when the cops later came to court, because the interrogation was not videotaped or audio taped, there was no signed confession. When they came to court, they were able to leave the threats and false promise uh -huh. out of their story. So that's perjury. So that's another lack of due process uh, thing right there. And then not content with having forced the confession out of me, they also fabricated the statement and attributed it to me. Yeah, and I'm asking you, thanks, Jeff, for taking the time to explain this, not just for people from around the world that don't understand the U.S. legal system, but I'm, I'm trying to get them to put themselves in your shoes for just a second. You're 16 years old. You don't have your parents around, your, your mother around. You don't have a lawyer in the room. You're getting a lot of threats and a lot of pressure, and you're exhausted emotionally and psychologically when you admit to something that you did not do. I feel like I need to say that because I'm concerned that right now people are listening to this episode and saying, why on earth did he say he did it when he didn't do it? I mean, what would you... Uh, I'm. You've been asked this question countless times. How do you answer that? 
yeah, you don't understand it unless you actually have been there yourself. And again, I just wanted to get out of there and just the the, the threat and the the false promise. I mean, those are the right psychological buttons and those have proven to cause innocent people to falsely confess. I mean, adults have falsely confessed, but particularly vulnerable populations are people that are youth and and also mental health uh, issues. So I would say it's more common when people realize, and to throw a quick stat out there, uh, it's caused wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. And maybe the last thing I'll add is that, you know, neither I nor anyone else that's falsely confessed, when you're not thinking about the long term, you're just concerned in the moment. Just just make it stop, right? Just make them stop. Just make them stop. Yeah, so did I hear your statistic right? Of the wrongful convictions, about 25% of the time, somebody has confessed to it because of those extraordinary circumstances. That's right, yes. And yes, that's a stat applicable to like all the cases that have been ended in exoneration through DNA tests. So we have this pile of unassailable data proven scientifically. And that's the, that's the percentage in that. Now, before I went to the trial, the DNA testing came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found in the victim did not match me. Uh But instead of acknowledging that they made a mistake, they continue to prosecute full speed ahead. So here's where some other violations take place. So the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit perjury and to commit fraud. So six months after doing the autopsy, and when they do autopsies, they're supposed to take written and audio notes as as they're making their findings. So six months after that, once the DNA doesn't match me, this medical examiner claims that he suddenly remembered that he forgot to document (laughs) I'm Medical sorry for findings. laughing, but no, it's, it's so no, it's outrageous, I, man. I, I, I remember now that I forgot, that forgot to document. Yeah. To document medical evidence that he claimed showed that Angela had been sleeping around. And that allowed the prosecutor to argue that that was why the DNA didn't Yeah, match that's why your that DNA didn't guilty. Match. She uh-huh. must have slept with yet another, you know, she was sleeping around. And then he took it a step further and he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never tried to support that. He didn't have a DNA test performed on another individual. He didn't call him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. So obviously it's not proper for the uh-huh. medical examiner to commit perjury. And then you, you have to you have to put forward some evidence in order to make arguments. You can't just pull things out of the air like he did. And lastly, that medical examiner had been complained of in neighboring counties by law enforcement because he was moving as a defense expert, but none of those reports were ever turned over to my attorneys. Yeah. So they got away with that for two reasons. I mean, primarily my defense lawyer allowed him to, right? Um, So my lawyer should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So this lawyer who, uh, there was a, the other youth that the prosecutor uh-huh. was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of that same public defender's office. And so that conflict prevented the defense yeah. from asking him to give him a, a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explore the consensual sex theory. And the other way that they got around, uh, got away with doing that is the victim's, Angela's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea what was being said about her in court. Uh-huh. But my lawyer failed me in other ways. He failed to do basic things. He never called my alibi as a witness. I was actually playing with a ball when the crime happened. 
He rarely met with me. When he would meet with me and I tried to explain that I was innocent, what happened in the interrogation room, he was, he was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Man. Another aspect of it is when it was time to try to discredit this medical examiner, my lawyer stood up in open court and said to him, you're going to be pleased to know that I don't have a single question for you. Then he, yeah, process that. Yeah. Wow. He never, he, he never, he never utilized the DNA evidence that didn't match me. He didn't explain the jury, the significance, of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that that proved the confession was coerced and false. Lastly, in terms of the confession, um, you know, when, when there's a confession, you're defending a case where there's a false confession. You have to answer that confession. You have to explain it. Uh -huh. You have to disprove that it's false, you know, and then bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. You know, he wouldn't allow me to testify. He did not try to disprove any parts of the confession. Sometimes he argued to the jury that the confession never happened. Other times he told them that it happened, but it was coerced. And at other times he argued that it, uh, that it happened, but that it was false. So with this scattershot approach, he yeah. had to have been standing there with no credibility, looked at as somebody willing to basically say anything. Right. I'm sitting Last, here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, because there I'm sitting here shaking my head at the, the many ways that this thing fell apart. Yeah. So a couple of other quick ways was that, first of all, polygraph test results are not allowed in the courtroom because they're unreliable and not scientific. In fact, intelligence officers are trained how to beat the polygraph. And, you know, the result they're, they're not only the results not reliable or scientific, but it's also prejudicial. So they're not the judge created this backdoor rule where he allowed the polygraphers to tell the jury the results, even though the, the rule is you're not allowed to uh -huh. do that. He allowed, he allowed the polygraphers to report to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the test tell ruling that because the uh, confession interrogation happened while I was hooked up onto the polygraph, that was why he was allowing it in. Yeah. So that prejudiced me. And lastly, uh, the victim's clothes, including her bra, were admitted into evidence. And that intersected with one of the statements in the cold false confession when um, I said that I ripped her bra off. So the jury asked to see the bra. And that was when the judge said that the clothing items, including the bra, had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that apparently the janitors thought that it was garbage. So it was thrown wow. out and it wasn't available anymore. Wow. Um, I, I could go on for hours here, but I want people to hear what happens next. Ultimately, you're a teenager. I was found you're, guilty. You're I was convicted found guilty. of rape and murder, and, and you're still a minor. A um, right, and, and I was, right, but I was given a 15 to life sentence because I had been charged as an adult uh -huh. and sentenced to an adult. The judge sentenced me, even though he said on the record, maybe you are innocent. You know, conceding there's a doubt, but wow. he sentenced me anyway. Yeah, because I, I begged him to overturn the verdict, and I referenced the DNA. And he said to me, maybe you are innocent. But but despite that, he did not overturn the verdict. And they and he sentenced me, and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison, route, you know, with a 15 to life uh, sentence. Yeah, I want to, so this is the part that I want to just camp on for a little bit with you, Jeff. You know you're innocent. By the time that the, tra the trial starts to get... This thing is a disaster from start to finish. But by the time that you're convicted, you're going away for 15 years to life. 
And I want to know how did you how did you hold things together when you go off to prison knowing that I just got convicted of something, some heinous crime that I didn't have anything to do? How did you how did you keep it all together while you're in prison? And, and honestly, I'd really love you to describe what were those next 16 years of your life like? I would describe it as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guards, the other inmates and the staff as obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn the verdict and, and uh, regain, regain my freedom. You know, I, I had to repeatedly fight off uh, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up suicidal, uh, suicidal ideation. Yeah. It was very uh, physically dangerous there. You know, um, there were several times in the course of my incarceration where I was beat up. One time, uh, which I nearly lost my life. You know, there, there's a vigilante mentality towards people yeah. who are victims of sex yeah. offense. So I had that bullet on my uh, back. Uh, in terms of how I survived, how I held it together, like a lot of things in life, it's more than one, more than one reason, more than one thing is happening at once. So definitely, belief in God was one thing. Secondly. In my mind, I wasn't doing a 15-to-life sentence. I thought I was doing a year or two until the next appeal was decided, uh -huh. which I was sure I was going to win. I used to go to the law library to learn the law because I didn't trust lawyers to defend me, and that gave a sense of, uh, yeah. That, Understandably. <laughs> relate to that yeah, one, right? Right. That gave, but I gave a sense of comfort. Uh, I would collect articles about other people who were exonerated and use that as motivation to keep going. I found things to throw myself into. So I, I took educational programs that were available in, in the prisons. I have something to focus on. And uh, from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books uh, a, a week. Wow. Um, in, yeah. In 1997, they allowed us to purchase black and white televisions in the in the prison. And for the most part, my TV stayed off because I was doing legal work and writing letters, looking for help and, and reading books. But I did watch some programs like on a weekly basis. And I engaged in this elaborate delusion, like I was really visiting with friends. And, you know, and, and similarly, when I would play basketball or ping pong or chess, I would pretend that I was a professional player. And so was everybody else. But it really wasn't like kids fooling around on a playground someplace. This was I needed to survive yeah. mentally as a defense mechanism to leave the prison for a couple of hours. And you try to normalize things and, and use utilize, utilization of euphemism. So it's not the prison guards, it's the correction officers. It's not the prison warden, it's the superintendent. And I'm not yeah. going to my prison job in the morning and in the afternoon, but I'm going, I'm going to school or I'm going to work. Right. You know, so all those things, um, all those things came 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 into play i remember listening to sports talk radio but it wasn't it wasn't listening to sports talk radio that was a lifeline to the outside uh -huh. and maybe the last thing i'll mention is that there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there by the name of frank sterling and frank and i kept each other going for about 13 and a half years we were both innocent i had read over his paperwork he read mine we had similar cases and ultimately frank was exonerated through dna testing also a couple of years after me so it wasn't that i was naively believing yeah. that another prisoner was was innocent but we actually right. were yeah so all those things rounded out and you know you try to adapt and survive i mean i learned you when you're in your cell, don't talk out of the cell. I didn't borrow anything from people. I would study people for one or two months, even before saying, you know, hello, I, you know, I, didn't, I just minded my business and I didn't gamble. I never once voiced my opinion about what should be, should, should what program should be looked yeah. at on the television. Yeah. 
any of those, any of those, if there's violence or something happening, throw your back to the wall. You know, people that are engaged in a high-risk lifestyle, stay the hell away from them so that when they self-destruct, they don't ultimately yeah, take you down right. with them. So all of those things were, all those things were factors. Yeah, but Jeff, the title of this podcast is Unbeatable, and the circumstances that you're descri- describing would have overwhelmed most people. So were there some moments during those 16 years, you know you're innocent, but you're not sure you're ever going to get out of prison that you felt like giving up? Yes, I would say, well, I mean, I kind of keep, I had, yeah, I, the short answer is yes. I mean, at times those thoughts crossed my mind, but so after my appeals were all over, that was in 2001. So I got about like 10 or 11 years in at that point, at times I'm wrestling with that still globally believing I'm going to um, get out, but occasionally uh-huh. having doubt, but my lowest point, and this is where I really believed I was going to die in prison uh, was after I went to the parole board and got turned down. So I've lost seven appeals. The only way back into court is if I find some new evidence, I have no money to hire a lawyer and an investigator. So I write four years worth of letters looking for help, never getting responses other than the occasional no, go to the parole board, maintain my innocence uh-huh. and get denied parole. At that point, I felt like, I, I, I almost every day I thought I was going to die in prison almost every day. You know, I, you know, was really close to giving up and committing suicide. I mean, I, I, a pen pal arrived. I wrote, I put an ad in the paper for a pen pal and he wrote me for the last like two years. He kind of showed up in nick of time. Like I was openly asking this stranger, do you think I should give up? Should I just go ahead and really? commit suicide? Yeah. I'm never getting out of here. You know, so that was a big part of the last answer that factors in. But maybe the other thing I'll say in terms of why I never succumbed to, you know, the thoughts of depression and giving up. And at times I even just thought about like just stopping to participate in the whole prison regime, you know, the the whole regiment. Just let me just lay down in the bed. I'm not talking to nobody. I'm not going anywhere. And silent protest, that's going to be my. But the thing is that I knew that I had nobody coming to my rescue. And so if I was going to get out of there, I was going to have to recruit somebody to help me. It wasn't going to be anyone I already knew. And to do that, I had to hold together mentally to maximize my chance of that happening. How did you know that though? What, uh, how did you learn that that's what it's going to take for you to be able to keep it all together? Because nobody that I knew like did anything to help me in all that time. Yeah. So that was how, but, but also I had read, I had read that in some of the other cases that had ended in exoneration, somehow or another, one chance encounter or another led, led to, to a, a third party yeah. to learn about, and that person built the bridge between the person wrongfully convicted and the ultimate legal professionals that were needed. And so I was going by that paradigm. So who built the bridge? You're out of appeals. It looks like you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. And who builds the bridge that makes it possible for that DNA evidence to finally come back to the courtroom? Uh, Claudia Whitman. So one of the letters that I wrote in care of a, uh, to a book publisher in care of the publishing company is instead sent to Claudia Whitman. So she's an investigator. She has a home in Maine and in Colorado. And she says, look, you're too far away. I can't work on your case. But what I can do is I will help you with the networking. I'll try Uh to connect you to somebody. And so once I sent her the DNA test results, because she she was kind of skeptical until I sent her that, 
And once she saw it, she was convinced I was innocent. And so she ultimately connected me to the Innocence Project. You know, it took about a year. She gave me lots of ideas and places to write. And then she hit upon that winning idea. So I write them and uh, fill out their application. She lobbies them from outside the organization, gets several other respected legal entities to do the same. And then I also got lucky that one of the intake workers, uh, Maggie Taylor, who's an attorney now, because uh-huh. then um, she presented, she, the Innocence Project, well, the way they were taking cases is, they were picking cases where testing or DNA testing could prove someone's innocent yeah. and then introduce that evidence to the court as something new, newly discovered evidence. So they didn't want to take the case because the DNA already didn't right. match me. It wouldn't have been new. But so Maggie represented my case several times, uh, ultimately a total of three, uh, coming up with different angles where they could do something with the DNA and it could constitute something new. That something new was that the DNA data bank had been created in 1997-98. And so we went from being able to compare a DNA testing item to a particular yeah. suspect versus being able to put that in the data bank, which contained samples of other people who were incarcerated for committing violent crimes. And the results matched the actual perpetrator. So yeah. getting the Innocence Project to represent was the first key. Second key is former Westchester DA Janine Pirro, a frequent commentator, then uh-huh. claims to be a claims to be a bulwark or a yeah. real big owner of due process, right? Um, she left office. She had fought all my appeals and blocked me from getting DNA tested. So she leaves office. And the third, and, and her successor allows me to get the testing when I have him litigate for it. And the third thing is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator his DNA was in that data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later, who I was who was a school teacher and who had uh, two children. Yeah. So on September 22nd, 2006, the conviction is overturned. I'm released. I report back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds and the actual perpetrator would subsequently be uh, arrested and convicted of the crime. I want to add that confronted with the DNA evidence, he admitted that he was the person who yeah. committed the crime. And he also admitted to a reporter on video camera. Um, describe the Internet Innocence Project for people that are not familiar with it. So not, it's a national nonprofit organization based in Manhattan that works to free wrongfully convicted prisoners across the country in cases where DNA testing can demonstrate innocence and in which no prior results have been obtained. Yeah. So when you finally learn that they're going to re-examine the case, when you finally learn that the innocence project is starting to make some headway um, at this point, you still don't know that the DNA is going to uh, definitely identify somebody. When did it, uh, when did you find out that, that the DNA that they took off of Angela's body actually matches somebody Um at what point in the process was that? Day before I was released. So my attorney came to see me. This is the first time she came to see me. First and, time in, in 16 years? Well, they agreed to take my case in 2000. Oh, okay. I, in 2015, they actually turned it. my case around in like six and a half months. So wow. it took a while for them to, but remember, I, they had denied me early in the process in 1993. Yeah. yeah. Because it was no databank, it wouldn't have been anything new. So I reapplied to them in 2015. 
And so the correspondence that happens between the innocent, the communication between the innocence project and the clients is by is by mail and some phone calls. It's generally not through through a visit. Uh-huh. So uh, she comes to visit me, you know. And by this point, I'm afraid to hope anymore. Right. And you know, and and I've I've lost even on technical grounds at times. So my antennas are up, looking for just anything out of the unusual. And she tells me that the items have been tested. And so that was out of the ordinary. I said, right. well, what, do you, what do you mean? They're not supposed to be tested for a couple of more months. And she said, no, no, the DA pulled some strings and, you know, got the, got the items uh, tested ahead of time. Uh, the results match the actual perpetrator. You're going home tomorrow. She said, you're going home tomorrow? Yes. And wow. you know what I said to her? Uh, I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth three times and she had to literally sit there and hold my hands. Yeah, I had she was, paralysis. Yeah. And my head is spinning and all these random thoughts are going through it. One thought after other, one thought has nothing to do with the next thought. And I'm articulating all this and she's just sitting back listening. And every now and then she cuts in and says, are you ready to talk about tomorrow yet? I'm like, no, 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 yeah. no. Don't bring that up. Get that the heck away from me. Right. Don't play with me. I'm not going home. Okay. Like it's not no. And you know, and finally what made it real at the end was she said, look, uh, visiting room, visit hours are almost over. There's a ton of things to do between now and tomorrow with the media. And then in addition to that, we got, you know, I need to get your sizes, you know, shoes, uh-huh. uh, suit size, all that. That's really what made it real. Yeah. And I felt better for all the five minutes. And then a different thought came in my head. Well, something's going to happen. Right. Of course. Between today and tomorrow, they're going to change yeah. their mind. They're going to do what they always do, right? Which is fight against me and win. I can't even begin to understand what this would have felt like when you finally were released, when you appeared before court, when all charges were dropped, and when you heard the word innocent. Uh, without asking you to try to explain that, because I don't think listeners will be able to really grasp what that was like. Can you help us to uh, understand what it feels like now to be a free man, but knowing I've just lost 16 years of my life that I can't get back? Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking how I can answer that. So firstly, I mean, psychological after effects that I didn't even know happened within me suddenly bubbled to the surface right Uh the mind suppresses it so you know it's common for people when they've been wrongfully imprisoned to have post-traumatic stress disorder panic attacks anxiety having been frozen in time um feeling of processing things at a slower speed uh fear on seeing law enforcement so i have all these psychological after effects so i had to do uh, work with mental health professionals like four times a week for six years to deal with the after effects of that. And even in trying to establish, you know, my, my, my ADLs, right. Activities of daily living. Uh, there was a stigma attached. I'd been in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes. But I'd been there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed right. off on you? Is it yeah. safe to be alone someplace? Yeah. Air quotes. So in personal relationships, that was a big, uh, that was a significant obstacle uh, I was always uh, passed over for gainful employment. They release you without anything. There's nothing. Yeah, I was able to ultimately uh, bring lawsuits and obtain compensation, but that took five years. There was nothing between point of release until then yeah. to help me. Uh, I did get a job as a weekly columnist, and I was making money as, as a, 
as, as a professional speaker, but the issue with working that way is that you only get paid when you get That's booked. Right. Yeah. The columnist gig was only before for a weekly paper. So they only wanted one article a week. So, uh, you know, overall it was difficult for me to have uh, income. I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place. At one point I was um, a couple of weeks away from a homeless shelter. It was awkward when I would meet up with, members of my extended family, because I knew who right. they were from members when I was young, but I'm different. They're different. They never came to see me or else came such an infrequent basis that there was still nothing. There was still nothing really there. So uh, I found it very, very lonely overall, you know, so, and then lastly, you know, technology had passed me by. So uh-huh. internet, GPS, cell phones hadn't been created uh, culture was much different. Cities and towns looked just familiar enough to feel like I was in a parallel world. Yeah. Overall, I felt like a fish out of water. So it was a very, it was a very difficult, uh, very difficult situation. But at the same time, you know, I became an advocate. I mean, I gave a two, two and a half hour off the cuff presentation uh-huh. at that press conference saying everything I had ever wanted to say in 16 years. All right. Never get anybody to hear me. So I, so I became an advocate from there. I mean, I started speaking. I, I decided to trade privacy for awareness by doing media interviews. So I, I kept that going. I started meeting with elected officials. And then I was writing, as I mentioned. So I did that for five years. Uh, Mercy College uh, gave me a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree because uh-huh. I had gotten the GED and associates while I was in prison another year towards the BA when time funding was cut. So they allowed me to finish the bachelor's degree. They allowed me to live on campus, which is how I avoided the uh, homeless shelter. And from there, I wound up getting a master's degree from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, my thesis on wrongful conviction cause and reform. I figured that the additional credentials, the bachelor's and the master's would help me be a more effective uh, advocate. And so after about five years, I was financially compensated and you know, I wanted to take my advocacy work to the next level. So I started, uh, the, I took some of the money, took seven figures from that. And I started the Jeffrey Destiny uh-huh. Foundation for Justice. And the idea being to continue the policy work, public education, but to try to also help get other people uh, home yeah. that were wrongfully imprisoned. And so ultimately we, we have been able to uh, get 11 people uh, home. Wow. Uh, and we pa- helped pass three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction, yeah. um, videotaping interrogations, identification reform, DNA database expansion, became uh, an advisory board member of a bigger coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which the foundation's part of. And we were able to help pass another um, six laws that way. Uh, the coalition group opened yeah. the chapter uh, in Pennsylvania, California, which uh, I'm active in. The foundation is active in all of those as well. And at some point, I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to sit at the defense table. Right. I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients myself, hence a uh, foray into uh, law school and ultimately becoming an attorney. And I've entered some cases as uh, as co-counsel yeah. in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as a lawyer. You just described really well why some people are so disoriented when they get out of prison. Even though they have their freedom, they're really not able to get a life for themselves. And they will end up going back into prison. And the rate of returning to prison, you and I know the word is recidivism, is so high. The fact that you were able to make it on the outside 
I'm really impressed with, but more than anything, Jeff, I'm impressed with you taking your experience and turning it into the Deskovic Foundation and helping other people that have been wrongfully imprisoned. Because as a society, we tend to think, oh, if they're in prison, they did something wrong. We don't really leave the door open for maybe the justice system imprisoned somebody who didn't do something wrong. So, wow. I want to mention, you know, I do, I do make, I do make sense of what happened to me. You know, I do in in a kaleidoscopic type of way. You know, I believe that I'm doing I'm doing the work now that I was meant to do. That's yeah. how I make sense of the. That's how I make sense of the the experience. You know, it's healing. It's it's healing. It's cathartic, and uh, it makes it makes yeah. it, it makes a difference. And yeah. maybe tied into that, and, and with that, by the way, with that realization, I feel like I have some some inner peace. You know that come that comes uh, with that. I, I've been asked often. You know, am I angry? Well, my answer, you know, is that, you know, I was angry for the first week and, you know, I felt like it was destroying me. Uh-huh. And I felt, look, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that if I'm this angry and bitter person. Uh, if I was to be angry or bitter, you know, it's not like I'd be adversely affecting the people that did this to me. I'm really going to be the only loser in that scenario. And I've lost so much already. Why would I want to, in effect, give over the rest of my life? And the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. Yeah. Well, I also want to say it wasn't lost on me that you got a graduate degree from a school named after the first chief justice of the United States. And it's only fitting that you would go to school there but now even being able to represent people in the courtroom, this thing really has turned full circle for you, man. Yeah, it, it really has. I just want to just quickly mention that, you know, people have enjoyed the interview that there is a documentary short out about me on Amazon prime and, uh, and Netflix called conviction. It's a 20, it's like, you know, short 21 minutes. It's gotten accepted into 16 different film festivals and it's about my advocacy work and, uh, life post exoneration, and one of the proudest things I am about that uh, documentary, which was um, directed and produced by uh, Geo Works, is that I used the platform that I had to really shine light on some of the non-innocence justice reform yeah, right. things I saw up close and personal. Yeah. You know, things like where I talk about things like the terrible um, healthcare for prison uh-huh. and elderly people in prison and, and, you know, compassionate release by the time a lot of people are approved for that, which you have to be, um, you know, considered to be terminal yeah. by Department of Corrections medical people. By the time they make decisions, people have like a day or two left. Sometimes they've passed away wow. already. College education for prisoners, you know, how that's really needs to be a part of any serious crime fighting uh, tool, you know, in light of the much lower recidivism rate yeah. of college educated prisoners and things like prisoner on prisoner violence, the staff abuse towards prisoners, solitary confinement, uh, parole reform. So many people went to the parole board, myself included, and rather than the parole board doing its job, which is to assess rehabilitation and whether or not somebody, if released, would remain at liberty without uh-huh. breaking the law. Instead, if you've been convicted of a violent crime, then that come back and see us two years yeah. and just have that continuing and, you know, how that's so counter counter. Uh, productive and the, the impact that it has on the morale of prisons. I've had people tell me before, you know, why should I bother to rehabilitate myself, take right. out these programs? They're not going to let me go again anyway. 
yeah. you know, and they really have, that's really like almost a complete abandonment of any idea of, uh, of re- rehabilitation. And if that's going to be the case, why even put up the pretense? Right. Why do we even spend money on programs, therapeutic, vocational, et cetera. So I talked about all those, all those different, uh, things within, within the, uh, within a documentary. Uh-huh. Uh, can, well, I'm going to tell people after you heard this episode, go out and watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime that documentary called Conviction. But let's say they're driving right now and they just want to find out how they can get more information about you, but not just you, Jeff, but about your foundation. What's the quickest way for people to learn about the Deskovic Foundation? Go to our website, www.deskovic.org. That's T-E-S-K-O-V-I-C dot uh, org. And find out more about us uh, that way. Um, in terms of what we're currently up to, so we have 11 cases that are active right now. Uh, we're pursuing uh, policy changes uh, in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. So really quickly, uh, in New York, uh, when the bill was passed to mandate videotaping interrogations, uh-huh. uh, it came out watered down, so they have exceptions for sex offenses, murder cases, and drug cases. We're trying to get rid of all those exceptions. So that's one of them. Uh, certainly the parole reform. So the board would have mm-hmm. to cite an additional factor. Um, so that, that bill is referred to as fair and timely parole. There's an elder parole bill, which means anyone that's 55 that, that served 15 years would be guaranteed a parole board appearance, not a release, right. just to be considered. So that's what we're doing uh, in, in New York. We were able to pass the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct landmark bill independent oversight board for the prosecutors we're trying to get the legislature now the, the governor to make their picks but we passed the law it was signed governor Hochul put money uh-huh. in the budget for it just make the picks and let's get started already uh in that's in new york and pennsylvania pennsylvania is one of 13 states that does not offer compensation so uh-huh. we're building support for that and of course we're trying to export the commission on prosecutor yeah. conduct to pa same thing in same thing in California. So that's as far as like the policy work that we've done. Yeah. That we are doing that I should say. Yeah. Well, um, just to wrap this episode up, Jeff, you lost a lot of your life serving a prison sentence for something that you didn't do, but you've taken the time after prison and have used it to really make a big difference, not just in your life, not just in the lives of people wrongfully convicted, but also in the lives of the criminal justice system anyway. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time and being on this episode today. I hope people have been challenged by what they've heard. I hope they'll go out and watch the documentary and then get connected to you at deskovic.org. Yeah, that would really be wonderful. My biggest challenge as somebody who started a nonprofit is that I kind of arrived at where, where I am uh, socioeconomic status-wise somewhat artificially, you know, just through means of the lawsuit. Right. So I don't have a cadre of people that we all rose up in yeah. business together 10, 20, 30 years. So my biggest challenge is I need third parties who can function as connectors to connect me to people of means. It's a soft sell. Look, this is what we've done. Here's what we'd like to do. Is this something that appeals to you? Yeah. Or maybe it does not, you know, but just to have people who can help connect us with that because, you know, we, we're, we're getting hundreds and hundreds of applications, you know, every, every couple of months. We even have seven cases that are approved that are just waiting. Yeah. We don't have the capacity to move them. So I know what it is to be on the other side, you know, of those letters uh-huh. and, and waiting. So people could help out. Look, it's not about me. 
you know, I've been compensated. I have my money invested. So that serves as a salary. So 100% of everything that was raised would, would go strictly for the mission of just freeing people and, and yeah. the policy work. So I just wanted to share that. Well, if you're listening to this right now and you want to get uh, involved, you want to be a connector that Jeff, Jeff just described, we'll put a link at the bottom of the notes to this episode with his website and more information. Jeff, thank you for um, being on this episode and hanging strong through 16 years of maximum security prison for a crime that you didn't commit. Thank you for having me. And most most appropriate to come on this podcast, definitely unbeatable. That's, you are unbeatable, my friend. Thank you. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Shawshank Redemption. And I really feel like today what I just heard was a real-life example of Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption. Jeff's story is amazing. And I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Hey, if you're struggling with something, and I mean you're really struggling and you're just hanging on by your fingernails, will you take Jeff's advice? Will you go get some help, even if it takes years of help to get better? In fact, I've got some free help for you. I created a resource called the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. I will give it to you totally free. All you got to do is just go to unbeatablearmy.com. I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. And if you found us for the first time, why don't you follow us on social media? Just go to at Unbeatable Podcast on your favorite social media platform and follow us there. Or better yet, would you rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast? Would you give us a rating and tell other people what you thought about Jeff's incredible story on this episode of Unbeatable? Thanks for joining me. I'll see you next week.